Hi, everyone. Welcome to Resourceful Humans. I'm your host, Corey Haber, and today I have with you Janide and Nancy. They're going to talk with us about office politics, especially office politics in our remote environment now in the workplace. And uh, things have definitely changed from what office politics used to be like with pre-pandemic when you're going into the office day to day. So thank you so much, you two, for coming on. I know you're both very busy, so I'm very honored that you could put aside the time. Look, I'm Thanks honored to be. Yeah, I'm honored to be here, and I always make time for podcasts. Oh, good. Well, let's jump into it because I know we have a lot to touch on, and you guys have a lot to a uh, lot of information to offer in this area. But before we start, I really think it would be helpful to our viewers to just kind of hear how you define office politics, and then what you feel like is what most people define as office politics. I'll let Nancy go first. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, I will say that most people define office politics as this vicious stabbing in the back sort of episode of, you know, survivor where who gets voted off the island. And I think that's a real confusion or inflation of politics with partisanship or conquest. Um, to me, office politics are simply um, the result of competing for limited resources in an organization. And resources are always limited, be it money, be it promotion, be it headcount, be it uh, the conference room or the virtual room. Uh, so politics is just a natural byproduct. And you know the point to sort of bolster that is think of your own family. You know, I mean, I think most families have their own politics, whether or not you're at the Thanksgiving dinner table. So I really define it as a very natural outcome that is unfortunately misunderstood, misdefined, and terribly mishandled. Yeah. So I think office politics, it's, it's, it's a neutral word, but just how it's often perceived, it does have a very negative connotation because there's both the pros and the, and the cons, right? There are some office politics where it's like, hey, you do your work, you get the stuff, you get the stuff done, and you're rewarded. Now, the other aspect, the negative side that a lot of people deal with is like when it comes to the dynamics, a lot of personalities really impact office politics. So you have dealing with certain personalities. Oh, this person likes this. This person likes that. So it's really so adding on to Nancy's answer is to bring up the layers of the personality dynamic that really impact decision making and that influence decision making. I think you're right. I think a lot of people for a lot of people, it has a negative connotation. It's and it doesn't have to. Uh, so, I mean, you, mo you both mentioned kind of how you see office politics. Uh, and so you feel like most people, for the definition for them, is it's, it's, a, it's more of a negative thought. Yeah, especially when people get fired over office politics, when there's favoritism that impacts their careers. You know, for me personally, there was a small amount of office, I remember, one of my previous jobs I had, my manager left because his boss was changed and he always had an issue with that boss because he wasn't respected. So he left as a result. And that was the negative part of office politics where you're sort of forced to do things. But I will say that there's also good, like for example, my worker and I, we have a very good relationship and we're very transparent. So it could go both ways, but it's it really comes down to leadership for really setting that culture and that environment. You mean for your company? That your partner. For, yeah, for my company, the, you know, just my business partners, we have good office politics. Um, 
but you know, I learned from kind of seeing what the negatives of office politics were. Well, and I would say from, from my point of view, I've worked so long with leaders and your teams within organizations and the people who got kind of stalled, you know, stalled in their tracks or left a job, as Janaid was saying, or teams that kind of plateaued, it was never expertise. It wasn't even goodness of intent. It was something political. Uh, and I'm sort of trying to move off the idea that a person is political to take a look at the structures within organizations, the incentive structures, the recognition structures, the resource structures, because you'll always have office politics. Oh. Um, it's just a matter of dialing it down so it doesn't interfere with the business and with people's lives. That's true. And, and so speaking of negative, you know, negative experiences, I'd really love to hear some more examples of negative experiences the two of you have encountered when it comes to office politics. If you have some good examples or stories you can share. I mean, sure, I've lost, I, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, Nancy, you, you right. jumped on that. That's stories. I mean, it's, listen, this is my wheelhouse. You know, I mean, I have a validated model. I've been a coach for 21 years. I was quoted in lots of places about it. Yeah, I mean, my negative experiences are really how I came up with my fascination and focus on this stuff, being fired twice. That's my negative experience. And in both cases, it was because I didn't read the tea leaves. You know, once it was because my I had a very different understanding of what I thought my boss should want versus what my boss truly valued, which I didn't respect. And that lack of respect probably was part of what got me fired. You know, I thought my job was to apprise her of risk, that that was really important. She thought my job was loyalty. And oh. that's a big disconnect. It the is. second time I lost a job, it is, I know. Well, but yeah. you know, in a sense, shame, shame on me, right? Uh, that I really couldn't put myself aside to read this, to read the chessboard, as I like to say. The second time was also getting fired because I thought I was in charge of hiring consultants who I thought reported to me, but I didn't know they played golf with the CEO. So when I said, no, we shouldn't go with these guys, they had typos in their proposal, they cut me out of meetings, you know, I, I don't want to hire them, I want to hire the other firm. I was overruled, and which undercut my authority. I didn't understand where the power in that organization really was. So those were my negative experiences. Yeah, or at I mean, least two of them. I'm yeah. sure there were I more. mean, one that sticks out and it has like a big impact close to my heart. Um, I used to do a lot of like career fairs for an older company, and I actually don't even list the company on my LinkedIn profile because I get a lot of LinkedIn profile views, and I don't want that company getting any more views than they have to. You know, to that, that's how I feel. Right. Right. Um, and it was, I had a friend who was, you know, so I used to be an actuary. So he had like a 2.9 GPA. And unfortunately, it, it's a very competitive field. Um, if you don't have, if you have under 2.0, you know, 3.0, it's very hard to get in. Um, but he passed the two exams. So it's not like he didn't have the ability. The exams are like the most important thing. That's So I used to do a lot of career fairs and I was, so the thing is most people hate going being the representative at a career fair because you literally have 50 of the same conversations the whole day. But for me, it's like, I could do that. I could do that all day because I know how it was as job seekers but and I, actuaries are not the most sociable people. Right. Awesome. So they, they hated it. They absolutely hated it. For me, it's like, I could go all day 
and I did several of them, and it, it was never like I got paid for it. It was just something, look, I like helping out. And so I, it's not like I needed him to get a job or anything. I personally met the person who's in charge of the program, and I handed her his resume. And look, if he failed the interview, that would be on him. But, you know, whatever, give the guy a shot. And then he didn't get it. And then I found out that someone else, got, he had two exams at the time. Someone else got the internship with no exams. And then, you know, it just, it's, it kind of sucks where it's, and unfortunately that was like his final shot at like getting something. And unfortunately he went crazy. He legitimately went mentally like schizophrenic and, you know, it's something that, you know, it was like the one shot, like had he got it, you know, you kind of, so that was for me office pot one at example. And the other one was where we would have to do time tracking for our work. Like, you know, how many time, hours, you, and I understood what he did to figure out where we're spending our time. But the fact was everybody was lying. Like every week, everybody was working like 40 to 50 hours and while taking a lunch and it doesn't matter. The busiest week was like 45 hours. The lightest week was like 40 hours. And it was like, what's the point of doing this if it wasn't accurate? And my manager was like, look, this is a waste of time. If you need me to, if you want me to tell you, I can tell you. But we, he was like, no, no, we need to do this time tracking report. It's like, what's the point of a report if it's erroneous? And it always caused big issue. And then people just fill it out at the end of the week. Like, oh, yeah, I did this, 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 this. So it was sort of useless, but the person loved it. And unfortunately, that person was a VP. And so when he just didn't really respect other opinions and, you know, as a leader, you kind of have to think about, look, why are we doing this? And what's the point? If the point is just to fill out a sheet that's not accurate to send to someone else who barely looks at it, it's just such a waste of time. So that was like my two biggest experiences with office politics. And then I took it as part of my own company. It's like, I never wanted to be someone who didn't really respect my employees, right? Like I, even though I'm whatever the highest in my company, I say my, my, you know, my assistant, she's my manager, right? She stays on top of me. And I'll always ask her, be like, Hey, am I, is, are you liking the work you're doing? And I'm treating her like I can't lose her because, you know, I would hate to lose her. Right. And I think that's like a big thing. It's like, it really helped me understand like how to really value your employees. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Hold the phone. Hold the phone. You're an actuary. I used to be an actuary. Okay. I know actuaries because I used to work in a big insurance yeah. company. And when you say they're not known for their social skills, I think you were, uh, how can I put it? Softballing that statement. Okay. <laughs> they do not look sound, walk or talk like you. So, you know, I wish you in a weird twisted way, I kind of wish you had stayed and been like a role model because nah. actuaries, I mean, okay. Do you know, I have to tell this joke. Do you yeah. know the difference between an introvert and introverted and an extroverted actuary. Have you heard this joke? No. No, I mean, no, no I haven't heard it. They're actually, it's pretty sad. This may be the only joke about actuaries. So and an introverted actuary, when he or she, typically he is talking to you, they look at their shoes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When an extroverted actuary is talking to you, he looks at, he looks at your shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that. I told you, yeah. That, that, that's a totally no, I mean, true. Sorry, Corey. Yeah, I heard no, nothing that. wrong with that's that. Funny. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, it's just another thing. That's sort of why I left the corporate area. It's just in terms of politics. Oh, yeah, the other thing, my personal thing, like I was always late to work every day. I'm not a morning person. And unfortunately, I have actually have a condition. I have a shifted circadian rhythm, but it's something that no one takes seriously. If you're like, oh, yeah, I wake up early for work. Why don't you? It's like, well, I can work fine at 2 a.m. Why don't you? You know, it's like a different thing. And a lot of people, just focus on, hey, I do things this way. But the fact is there are so many personalities 
And if you don't have conversations with people, because it's like, look, I passed my actuarial exams. I went to an Ivy League. I did all that. It's not a lack of work ethic. It's just I'm literally not a morning person. So that was another thing for office politics. I remember one day walking in on my chair and the, you know, she was a good manager. It's just she just didn't understand. She's like, hey, your work hours are from nine to five, you know, 530 with the one hour lunch. And, you know, please. But for me, it's like my work wasn't dependent on coming in at nine. It's not like I'm opening up a store or I have to produce a report at 10 a.m. every day. And even if I had to, I'd probably do it the night before, you know, I'd find ways to make it work. But unfortunately, it's when I find a lot of office politics, it's when you focus so much on the process and not the results. Right. Oh, I, I want to, I'd like to push back on that just a little bit, yeah. right? As something I don't really consider political, because we can call everything political. So yeah, yeah, of course. Right. So I'm, I'm somewhat empathetic to the yeah. fact that to make an organization run, right? Yeah. You have to have some kind of sort of standards yeah. of the game. I agree. Because you need people to work with each other. Yeah, yeah. You need to have meetings, right? And so, I mean, now I think we're evolving because we needed to, to ways where work is flexing in some ways. But the larger, I used to, by the way, and I had the same pushback with my company because I had a young child. I was a single mom. I had a 90-minute commute. I could not get in before 9.30. I just physically couldn't do it. And I had to leave at like 5.15 on the the dot, you know? And I was an officer. It didn't matter if I was on my then Blackberry at 10 o'clock at night or 5 a.m. There's something about FaceTime. So I, you know, I kind of resented it because I felt that in my life circumstances, I had no choice. Right. But on the other hand, if someone, you know, maybe I'm just like putting myself above everyone else in a way, but I, I kind of get it because it is really hard to manage a group of people yeah. if everyone is coming in at a different time and leaving at a different time. You know, it kind of is like it gunks up the works. So yeah. I don't like the rigidity of it. I'm with you totally on that. And I think what most people want in work life is more flexibility. But I get the reasoning for it. No, no, I get the reasoning. That's not I just think yeah. that's kind of yeah. You just yeah, no, you're right. right. Yeah, yeah, no, of course it, yeah, I guess it's not political. It's just how organizations are structured. Yeah, it, it just gave me, and that's why I really pride my company on flexibility. And, you know, that's kind of what, look, I understand there's a, there are pros and cons to everything, but, you know, they play, they pay for an employee turnover. Simple as that. You know, you pay Damn one straight. way or another. You oh, Hey, you always pay. And, and by the way, it's not an accident that I've been out of corporate life for 13 years. All yeah. right. There is no way I would go back because I do think there's such a suppression of talent and voice in favor of process. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. I have a question for the two of you. So just in my opinion, uh, I feel like a lot of times the negative office politics um, situations uh, come from a disconnect, like you mentioned, Nancy, or just a lack of someone understanding what their responsibilities are or what's expected mm-hmm. of them. Do you feel like that's the case? Or, or if so, you know, how does someone avoid that? prevent that from happening? I would say it really stems from the top and you really have to have the conversations with everyone. Cause you know, people have like a weekly team meeting and all that. And again, it's an organizational issue that you put so much meetings on these officers. Like I see officers and it's like meeting, 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 meeting. Hey, I have like 10 minutes between if this meeting finishes early and they literally don't have time to manage. And then since they don't have time to manage, 
their people under them don't grow at the same rate. So it's just like right. you, you know, I'm of the, I'm of the theory that you got to make sure that you never fill up your people's calendars, because if you fill up your people's calendar, if an emergency comes up, now they have to push these 10 things away. And that's why people have these things that they never get to be just because they have so much on their plate. So right. you really have to set the time to have these conversations because what happens is this person leaves and you have no idea. You have no idea yeah. that they're not being respected. And the fact is now you're rushing to hire, you know, everything ends up being rushed. Whereas like, you don't have to do everything, but the things you do, you have to do them well. Like you don't have to like hiring. If you do it well, you just fix so many issues. If you ha get these one-on-ones at regular times, because most of the time you get like a quarterly review. It's like, so you got to wait three months to a get quarterly. Nice. That's a very forward thinking yeah. company. Yeah. And that's a forward thinking company. You know, most of the time it's annual review. It's like so much changes in a year. The market changes in a year. So many, you know, your, your goals may change in the year. So it's like, I think I read a book. Some There's a book that talks about how yearly goals are not that good. You're better off setting goals every three months because what happens is it's shorter. It's more, you make smaller goals and then you can see, okay, hey, did I do it? I said I was going to lose five pounds. Did I do it? Oh, no, I lost 10 pounds. So now you can figure out where's like a year. I could go eat. Yeah. Whereas like a year passes and it just literally ends up being too long that you forget about your goals and all that. So I'm a big fan of like, I guess, mini goals and many things. And same thing as an organization. It's just things, so many things happen within a year that you need to have these conversations more often. You know, Corey, I would say the answer to your question is the answer any consultant would give you, which is it depends. You know, um, I do love the expression. I think it may originally come from the mafia. I'm not quite sure. But it's that a fish rots from the head. So if you don't know what your responsibilities are, there's a lack of clarity, you know, yes, it could be because you have an incompetent manager, frankly, or you have an inarticulate leader, or you have a manager who focuses all of his or her time on managing up uh, versus being a developmental manager. On the other hand, it could be because you haven't asked the questions. You're don't feel psychologically safe to ask questions. You don't know the right questions to ask. You have different priorities. You know, you have a certain way of thinking how your job should work, right? So I, I don't think it's always clear cut what's right. going on. You know, is that political? Um, again, you know, I think my definition might be a little bit more narrow because I think of political intelligence at least is building alliances pursuing results, overcoming obstacles, and reading the chessboard. And behind those things are very specific behaviors that are more positive versus negative. I mean, information sharing or hoarding is a big one where I've seen teams absolutely crumble. And so is that a political act? Not intentionally, but it's politically dysfunctional. And I think that poor, absent management can absolutely create a dysfunctional political atmosphere. You can. You know, I was thinking the other day, if you had a manager and their employee sit down and write down, if the employee had to write down what their responsibilities are, or they believe their responsibilities are, and the manager had to write down what they believe that employee's responsibilities are, I feel like in most cases it would not match up. It would not. And I think that's a display of how well how good the management is or isn't 
because they should match up. Everyone should understand what each person is responsible for. That's but typically the manager's, well, it's not just the manager's responsibility, but when that isn't clear, I think eight times out of 10, it's the manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so you told us about a, a lot of negative experiences, which I think some people can relate to. Do you feel like those have contributed to kind of where you two are today or why you do what you do now versus what you used to do? Yeah, I mean, for me, it definitely impacted a lot. That's why it's like, I pride myself on flexibility. Like I actually, like I, I always ask like, hey, are you happy with the work I'm giving you? Is this what you wanna do? What do you wanna do in the future? Because as a startup, there are many things I can do in the future. And it doesn't matter if I do X, Y, Z, it's still gonna help grow my company. So with the employees I have, and I know how what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, I'd rather focus on their strengths and maybe like, I just wanna make sure that they're doing work that they see themselves doing because you pay your employees in more than just the money you give them. You pay them in you know, the enjoyment, the flexibility, and it's an actual relationship. And look, they may not stick around forever, but I know that they'll refer good people to me because you look at all these top companies and you know people talk about you know, they leave, but what do people put next to their name? X Google, X Facebook, X that. So then what does that mean? That means Google is still getting, someone's thinking about Google, someone's thinking about Facebook. So you want to be, because your previous employees are your best marketers, whether mm -hmm. you, you realize it or not. And, you know, they're, they're going to tell so. Because who, who do you ask when you're working at a company? You ask for your friend who worked there. Hey, what do you have to say about this company? And that's something that they can either say good things or bad things. And you can control that. So it's like treat someone well. So they're like, wow, I'm going to send the best person to them because this person took care of me. So that really impacted. And then also it's like, I've just, you know, I kind of saw like how in certain ways where it helped me and where it didn't help me. So I, I took the good and I was like, look, this is what I can do good, but Hey, this is what I shouldn't do. And, you know, I catch myself trying to figure out it's, it's, it's an ongoing process, right? I, I don't have it perfect and I'm getting, I'm, you know, doing the best I can. But it informs everything I do, Corey. I mean, it, it's the basis of all my work, uh, especially over the last two and a half years. You know, my team and I figured out a way to measure it, uh, to create a model, an organizational assessment around it. Um, mm -hmm. Every good leader I know will admit it. I did a webinar for Sherm that I think you were part yes, of. Yes, I was a part of it, yeah. That's how we met. And you yes. know, when I took a poll, have you ever worked for an organization that wasn't political? 96% of that audience said, no, I have never done that. You know, so I'm on a mission to strip away the evil in the word manipulative, in the word political, to not just help people navigate those challenges that they will always run into, you will always run into, but actually to have organizations acknowledge that emotion, EQ, is only 30 years old. The brilliance of EQ was marrying the word emotional with the word intelligence. Those words never went together before. And EQ is wonderful, but it has a really hard stop, which is understanding myself and understanding you. It does nothing to address the business impact of the space between us. And so it, it informs, honestly, everything I do in that when I see teams miss their milestones, on a roadmap, it was because of information hoarding. It was because of conflicting priorities. It was a lack of alliance around a common deliverable. And, and the impact of gossip. 
So the accepted messages from on top, they don't, nobody believes them anyway. So it's once you know what it is, it's like once you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Once you have a framework, you see it everywhere. So I don't want people to fail, good people to fail. Um, I want them to reach their full potential. So I'd say it's kind of woven into me now. I even have a son who's like a professional political operative. So oh, really? It's, really, it's oh yeah, he's a camp. Hello, Malcolm. Yeah, he's on his running his third. <laughs> he's his third campaign. He's managing. Wow. Wow. Nice. So it's really yeah. woven into your lifestyle now. Oh, I can no get no getting away from it. <laughs> So, so what are some positive experiences then that you've had? The, the, no, or no, no. I'm sure. <laughs> the office. Yeah, never. No, well, okay. well, actually, one. Po- I mean, I've had a lot of positive experiences. I think actually having this, I've done a lot of research on it. I think having this sort of intellectual capital, um, and this and this um, experiential learning over the last twenty years, I bring enormous insight and shortcuts to my clients that once they can sort of accept it and, and lose a sort of instinctual blah yeah, about it, has impacted so many people and, and careers. And for myself, I formed strategic alliances. It's made me more patient. It's made me less judgmental. It's made me more open to pulling back and listening. And so I have lots of relationships now I never would have had before. And that is from a certain kind of political savvy, you know, and being able to pull back from the personality and listen to the idea. Because I think it's personality that often gets us right. in trouble. That's a very emotional reaction. That's true. I mean, for, for me, I guess the positive side is I made relationships with a lot of people in the office. And like it put me in a good position that if I ever wanted to get hired back at some of the companies, I can get referrals. And I still like just a lot of people really forget that, that just because you leave a place doesn't mean you can't come back. I see a lot of people go back to their old companies and they go back with higher salaries. So that's another thing that uh, just navigating that, just building relationships with people and understanding like how to help them is really important because I think that's how you add value to an organization, right? Because information hoarding is a big thing. And sometimes it's not intentional. It's just, you're the guy responsible for this and you only communicate through email and no one really asks you questions. Like one thing that I would always do is I would ask them questions about their work. I would ask them questions about what they need help with. And then I find out, oh, this other guy has that report that you, they're all, they already do it. So why are you spending two hours doing it? Just get this report and change the formatting and you're done in five minutes. So that's like the other aspect of politics is like when you really get to understand the issues people face and the struggles and what they need to get done and you help people get those things done, they'll really remember you. And then you just make things better for the future. And then you make these, you make other people connect. And I think that's what a lot of people, like I've always been a connector. So that's like, I use, utilize that as my strength. And it just allows me just to learn about like what I wanted, what I wanted to do in the future, or just learning where organizations sort of have these gaps, because regardless, you're always going to have gaps in large organizations. It's just the, you know, the, what happens with size. I think the most positive political action anyone can take within an organization is understanding resistance. Because as Janaid said, people don't speak to one another. And when somebody resists what you want them to do, you just assume that they're resistant, you know, like they're a problem. You never try to find out by asking good questions and actually listening. There's a reason for their resistance. That prop that makes a lot of sense to them. And if you can just pull back from yourself and speak with them, 
you're going to learn something and you're going to make an alliance. And that's really smart stuff to do. And that's not done enough. I, I don't believe. I feel like a lot of times when I just, when I speak to people, employees or managers, the most of their majority of their conversations that they have with management are very structured. Their reviews, they're not, they don't get to have a lot of just conversation time to talk about uh, how they feel or what they enjoy doing, what they don't enjoy doing. Like you mentioned, Janine, it's, you know, a lot of these, a lot of management, they book themselves where they have no time to talk to their employees or manage at all. And it really impacts how comfortable I think your employees feel, whether they can come to you or ask you questions too. So it does, I think, contributes to the office politics. And so, I mean, I like the positive spins. I'd kind of like to hear if you have um, examples of just positive office politics situations that you've heard recently from people in this remote environment. Because I know it's very different in the remote environment versus in an office. Uh, ah, a hard question. Well, I, I, mine is <laughs> non-remote, but I did a resume for someone and he got a job at like a big company. Well, I'll mention it, Tesla, right? So yeah. office politics actually helped him. So he was like a solar roofer. And after seven months, he saw a project manager position and office politics he was known as the guy that you could depend on. He was like a natural lead. And he, I said, hey, look, you know, when you're applying for this project manager position, does your ma ask your manager? And he's like, hey, my manager has my back and my support. My manager told me that he would apply and give me the recommendation. But I said, why don't you go directly to the guy and hand in and office politics helped him get the promotion. So that's the other aspect. And, you know, he deserved it. He worked hard and people were happy for him. So that's like a positive aspect. I, I think um, remote wise, it's like, I'll kind of talk about myself. It's like we sort of use Slack. We sort of use these. And I, I host virtual events for companies. So that I use that virtual event platform to sort of we're doing a comedy show. And are the people who work for us get to do it for come for free. So it's kind of like that where it's like, hey, like this team gathering thing. Um, sometimes I think a lot of people are getting it's different. Some people are getting more free time or they're getting enough flexibility that they can do things or have conversations with people they normally could not have gotten conversations with because in the office you have, unfortunately a lot of office you have to keep up appearances yeah but in the remote environment if you're getting your work done and you're getting it done a certain way and people are happy you actually have some flexibility to do a lot of things so i'm seeing a lot of people connect deeply and it's it's really helped a lot of introverts i think like this environment because a lot of people think like introverts don't like interaction. It's just, they don't like overstimulation, right? They don't like too much right. stimulation. So if they can get their work done in a certain environment, they, you know, they prefer like the, the phone calls and, you know, connecting with people. So I think that's what you're seeing is like some people are actually connecting even deeper than before because they, they, they have, they can control a lot of, they have a lot more control right now before in an office, if someone comes by your cube and, you don't want them to. It's a little harder to say, hey, man, I'm busy. Not everybody is comfortable enough to say that, right? right. It's a skill to develop. And most people that's aren't. good. Yeah, yeah. Most people <laughs> just kind of, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I am, you know, but for me, it's also like, I like talking to people. So for me, it's, it's harder for me to say. Uh, I would say yes, but uh, meaning the people I tend to work with are in mid-sized or large companies. And 
the answer to your question, Corey, is no. I actually don't have a lot of positive stories because people don't know where decisions are being made. And mm -hmm. the sort of serendipity of information you pick up by, you know, even if someone you don't like is stopping by, you know, your desk and open plan or over coffee, all that informal information that threads through an organization isn't there because everything is scheduled now. And although I have made fabulous deep connections, you know, I run a small consulting firm and I'm always doing business development. And so it leads me to make interesting connections. But if you still have the same job you had before, the boundaries between, you know, home and work are gone. You don't have a commute as a connective tissue or as a pain in the neck, but you don't know how decisions are being made as much. And I'll just come back to that. You know, what skills are going to be more valued next year? People in New York, my clients are saying they don't expect to go back to their office till next summer. I mean, yes. I was in an office for the first time this last week. I thought I had been cast in a post-apocalyptic zombie movie. You know, it was Midtown. It was so friggin' weird. Oh. So I do think that this has torn at the fabric and that people are feeling they're sort of on their own. Um, so I don't have positive political stories because I think there's a lack of information. Um, and there's no easy way to replace that in the way we're working right now. I know that there will always be office politics. Right. There are, are always politics. I just don't know, frankly, what they're going to look like. I, I don't think a lot of people do. We have a, we don't have a lot of ideas on how things will look after this pandemic. No one knows. Yeah. Anyone who says they do, they're just making them. Yeah. I, honestly, how could anybody know? It's like knowing when the pandemic is going to end. They might have a crystal ball at home that tells them. Yeah, you know, I retired my crystal ball in 2016. I You're decided after. Yeah, thank you. Well, my crystal ball clearly wasn't, right? So <laughs> I just decided, you know, forget that. So, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, I agree. I remember seeing posts months ago, hey, everything's going to get better in two weeks. And I was like, four months ago. And it, it just, oh, yeah. just kind of sad that you have, and, you know, it was like a CEO of like some bank, not a crazy big bank, but a local bank. And it's like, how are you a leader and your, you know, you know, your decisions, you've got to have, you've got to be honest. Like some leaders have to say like, look, I don't know when things are going to get better because nobody knows. And tell me how many people predicted it. And why are you listening to these people whose predictions were wrong two months ago? You know, it's not like their predictions are going to be any more right than they were three, four months ago. It's like a game, but yeah. you know, I have my own podcast, a political IQ and uh, this week's episode is a guy called Ravin Jasuthasan, who work, works for like the World Economic Forum at Davos. Yeah. And he's the head of global talent practice at Towers Watson. You know, he's a really smart guy. And, you know, he was talking about the future of AI and, you know, how we're going to really need to focus on the future of humans. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's really about it's about work. What does work look like going forward? So, A, I put in a little plug for myself, I know. But yeah. you know, okay. there's, a lot, there's a lot of big brains. I mean, look at the difference between Amazon, for example, and Facebook. I mean, in just predicting the future of work. So Amazon bought the Lord & Taylor building in Manhattan for office. I didn't know that. 
which, well, yeah, and ironically, it was supposed to be the headquarters of WeWork. So somehow there's a beautiful poetry in that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where Facebook is basically saying, hey, you know, we can hire talent anywhere. We don't have to hire talent in Silicon Valley and pay those high salaries. We're pegging salaries to location of the person. Well, what's that going to do to cities? But meanwhile, right. Amazon's buying like this huge building for offices. So do you want to put your money on Zuckerberg or Bezos? Who do you think smarter? I mean, I have my opinion, but you know, I don't know. That's true. We don't know. Bezos. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Um, you know, so the last question I want to ask you, which I've actually had, it's been asked, or I, I know a lot of people that are curious is, what's a healthy amount of office politics? I would say a healthy amount of office politics is when you take into consider the needs of the organization and the needs of the people and trying to find a healthy balance between the two so that it doesn't, it actually, and I think it's the right balance where it actually maximizes the results of the individuals and the organization. Because if you put, if you give an employee the tools that they need to succeed and you figure out how it's gonna, you know, how to do it within the, you know, within the organization, you're going to see a lot of good results. And I, I've seen it all the time where it's like happy employees. You know, they say like employees that are engaged are like 4.6 less likely, 4.6 times less likely to leave, you know, higher productivity. Yeah. And if it's higher productivity, it's like, you know, the organization benefits. And when the organization benefits, they have more resources to give back to the employees. So it's just like a positive feedback cycle. So I think that's like a healthy amount where you really you don't just think about the needs of like a few people who control the organization. You think about the needs of everyone. Well, it's hard to top that. I would just say that when women and people of color and LBGTQ believe, people believe that the game is not rigged against them, yeah. that they understand how organizations work, they are able to be smart about that and that organizations recognize that this is a reality and that everyone deserves to be able to rise to their full potential. And how do they, as organizations, get out of those people's way so that, as Janide said, the individual benefits, but so does the business. So yeah. there's no measurement, but since I can measure it, you know, yeah. there's probably a magic number, but those are the things I would, I would evaluate it against. Yeah, no, and I think to add on to that, you know, when you think about women, minorities, and just anybody who's not, it's like, you want people to not realize their own race in situations. Like when, you, when you're with your friends, and you're with people you're comfortable, you don't, really, you don't think like, I'm a woman, right? You're just with your friends. Because the worst thing in any organization is when people recognize like, oh, I'm a woman, I got to approach this situation differently. I'm X race, I got to approach this situation differently. You know, because it's like, when people think like, okay, you know, I didn't get the position because, you know, it's fair. This person deserved it. But when people start questioning, again, it's like when people start, those thoughts typically, not for everyone, but for most people, they only happen because, you know, they kind of see patterns. They kind of see results. They kind of see biases. Because, you know, I work with candidates of all different backgrounds. And I see a lot of women when they want to negotiate. They're like, look, how do I go about it? I don't want to come across as, you know, because, yeah, I mean, sorry for, excuse my language, but, you know, women are, seen as they don't bitchy. want to be seen as a bitch yeah they don't want to be seen as that <laughs> and unfortunately Absolutely. you know studies show that that when they do negotiate they're perceived a certain way and it's like you don't want that to happen you want them to be like look i'm going to negotiate and you know i'll be fair i'll get it or if i don't but 
you know, I see that happen a lot where they kind of see like, oh, XYZ is getting a promotion because they're, you know, of a certain race or whatever. You don't want that to happen. So I think that's the, you know, to add on to Nancy's point, like people, you know, in a good organization, people just forget who they are. They, they're like, oh, I'm just a person in an organization that works with this title and I contribute. Well, that I have this this is a whole different podcast because yeah. I have a lot to say back to that. Okay. Yeah. But I'll have to have a whole other episode on that. <laughs> yeah, but I I never forget I'm a woman. And you know, yeah. I also frankly, um, I hope I think I've reached the point where you can absolutely think I'm aggressive. Go right ahead. And I really hope for women of younger generation that they're okay with that. Because it's a self-limiting self-judgment. And it limits the organization from getting, you know, women to the position they deserve because, you know, you want to see like, hey, there are, there's women on the board, there's women at the EBP, VP, SVP level, because again, you know, when you have an organization, you want people to be able to look up to people and be able to reach out to people as mentors, because look, I, you know, as like I see certain females, they want a female mentor because the experiences are going to be slightly different and they want to be able to, you know, there's some, a lot of nuance and subtleties and I want people to be able to have access to stuff like that. I agree. I've had, I've had some experiences just when you aren't mentored by a female, sometimes it's, it's just a different experience. It's, yeah. It's different. You want mentors of all different, right? You, I like, you know, my mentor is a female who are, who's in her forties but then I have other mentors who are males and, you know, each one gives a different perspective, different right. things. And you want that you want diversity in your mentors because each one has their own unique experiences and then you can figure out what's right for you. Right. I agree. Well, you guys, this was, this was great. I think there was a lot of helpful information fun. on office politics and you guys are fantastic. Um, so thank you. Cordell. I know you're both, you're welcome. And I'm so honored that you, came on to my podcast and I know you both are available on LinkedIn if anyone has something further they want to ask you. So thank you for coming. I, and I think we should introduce ourselves. We never really I introduced ourselves. So. Yeah, go ahead. Do it real quick. Nancy, go ahead. <laughs> all right. Well, you all know my name. Uh, so I have um, a consultant firm, Political IQ, and we work with organizations to assess the political climate and how it differs with business. In addition, I'm a speaker. I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer. I'm happy to add you all to my mailing list if you reach out to me. I have an uh, MBA um, from a fancy pants Ivy League school, uh, but my early career was I ran a ballet company. Um, uh, I, yeah, huh? And my second career was touring factories in Central America and Asia to see UN health and safety violations and negotiate financial settlements for American clients. So leadership has been my third career for, as I said, over 20 years now. Um, and I love it. I love the politics angle. So please, you know, follow me on at N Halpern on Twitter. My YouTube channel is Get Political IQ. Um, and come visit and tell me what you think. Yeah, I mean, my career is much shorter. Because you're younger than I am. So I used to be an actuary. I passed two exams, but I've been working on what I do now. Uh, I'm the founder of nodegree.com, and I help people without college degrees find meaningful careers that pay well. And, you know, my real goal, my life's mission is to sort of cha- change the stigma attached to people without college degrees. And my, I'm the host of the No Degree podcast, where I interview people without college degrees and help them, you know, 
know, have them share their story so other people can follow in their path. And that's on nodegree.fm. And, you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, just send me a personalized request saying, hey, I listened to you and Nancy talk about political stuff on uh, Corey's podcast. And yeah, I mean, thank you for this, Corey. You're welcome. Thank you, Corey. It's great fun. Hi, so I am back with Janaid and Nancy, and it's been about three months since our last recording, and we're touching base because this pandemic is changing things so much that I think it has changed a little bit of what we discussed on the topic of office politics. So I just want to bring you two back to discuss how do you feel office politics are evolving or changing now that businesses in certain parts of the country are transitioning back to in-person full-time or maybe a mix of virtual and in-person? Well, you know, Corey, nice to be back with both of you. And I think it's a very timely question because just recently, Harvard put out a blog piece about the impact of trust uh, in terms of working from home. And even though at first there was a lot of camaraderie, so perhaps politics was dialed down, it's rearing its head again as managers and peers can't really see what you're working on. You don't have the time in the office to smooth things out. In addition, of course, with some people returning to the office, and some people not return to the office. Some people exploring sort of partial working in the office schedules. Something's starting to happen, which I'm really concerned about, which is this creation of two classes of employees. The ones who really were kind of brave and earned brownie points for coming back to the office and the wusses who don't wanna come back to the office. And so my concern is that's really gonna increase the bad side of politics by eroding even more trust and making people more uncomfortable and you know thinking that some talent is worth more than the others. So that's one of the big trends that I've been seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, like I, I remember when I worked in the office, some people just don't know how to word their emails and like they're mean in emails, but they're nice in person. So I think it, that it that's always an issue, right? Where some people just don't, it's a different way of communicating online, right? So I think that that has changed. I also think the office politics with the manager, it, it gets a little more complex because now you need to be a really good manager to sort of manage people during this time. It's not the same that you need to be able to manage, like it, you have to be delicate, right? Because you need to do like the one-on-ones and you need to be respectful. So I think it, it makes it more complex and it's really showing the managers who are true leaders versus the managers who are manager in title only. That's a really good point, especially when it's coming to the performance review season that we may be in when this airs, we're certainly in it right now. I know some companies who have announced a sort of COVID discount when it comes to the performance review and the feedback. In other words, be kind. But I also know other managers who say, well, lousy performance is lousy performance. You know, I can't give someone a free pass just because it's COVID. So when it comes to the office politics, I think that is entwined with this notion of how are we now talking about talent as well as how we're now talking about leadership and the impact that has. Right. And I, going back to what you mentioned, Nancy, as far as there being two classes, I, I think that that also comes into play as when it, back to what Janine said is 
I think you could have two classes of who you feel are leaders and not leaders in this virtual environment, who you feel are nice and not very nice peers in this virtual environment. Uh, it does, it's, I think this, people are becoming segregated into different groups just because of this virtual environment. Well, I think the real question under that though is will it change how we evaluate talent? Will it change how we think about productivity? Will it change how we describe workflow? And those are very big questions that will be individually answered by individual companies and individual leaders in HR departments. But that collection of individual actions or thoughts have an impact on how work is viewed overall. That's true. Yeah, no, I think you will get that. And I see a lot of companies really have to adapt um, because you see a lot of companies, they, I think they provide a lot of lip service, like, hey, we really care about diversity, employee engagement. And now it's like, you can, you can say it, but now you know whether or not your employees are engaged, right? It, you can see the companies that really engage their employees and the companies that don't. Well, you asked what else had changed, Corey, and I think this also piggybacks on what Janai just said. I have been tracking a trend in the voice of the employee that I think is stronger now than has been at any time in American labor history since unionization. Um, yeah. Employees, yeah, employees, uh, I think com a combination of factors, social media certainly, and the fact that the individual uh, can have a voice that's as strong potentially as any other voice. I think societal movements from Black Lives Matter to Me Too, to the fact that we're working from home in our theoretically psychological safe spaces has meant that employ individual employees feel emboldened to speak up uh, about inclusion and diversity, but frankly also about business choices that they think represent their company. Now in the past, it wasn't up to the individual employee to decide whom to advertise with right. or products to launch or lots of things like that. But now that's happening. And I think you'll see that amplified when employees are asked to come back from home to the office. And yeah, yeah and their answer is gonna be, well, why? I, I can prove that I can do my job. And there's another segregation in that though, right? Um, in something I've heard heads down versus heads up work. You know, heads down, you're looking at your laptop, typing away, heads up, first line, you know, essential workers, you have to be there. So there's another sort of, it's funny how office politics sometimes do reflect the politics of our society. And I think those two things are getting uh, more closely aligned in the three months since we yeah. last spoke. And to add on to that, I kind of see for people who have the luxury of being able to work remotely, I do see them have the ability to switch jobs more easily because one thing I will say that if you didn't like your job before interviewing was always something like how do I find time to get out multiple interviews now it's like just work from home right before it was hard I I, I knew some managers who did not like work from home but now it's like you as a manager if you don't like from work from home it's like look studies have shown that people have been more productive and actually working more so you really don't have any excuse to say to get someone in the office at least five days a week, right? It just doesn't, not, that's not something you can do. So I think it does give the employee more power in that you do have the ability to interview more easily and leave the toxic workplace more easily, which would force companies to kind of change their practices. 
One hopes, uh, although I think there's going to be more of a global marketplace, <clears throat> excuse yeah. me, not a national one for talent, because now you can work anywhere. You can right. apply for a job in LA instead of New York, and you can deal with the time difference. The problem with the productivity research, though, uh, big sigh, is that there's been a total erosion of work-life balance, or at least the threat of it. And so I was thinking recently, who now owns your commute? Like what happened to yeah. that space, right? That used to be a bridge of transition um, mentally. Now, do you actually use that commute time for yourself or for your family or for your own development or is it found work time? So one of the reasons I think the productivity numbers show that people are more yeah. productive. They work more. Right? Yeah, they're working more, yeah. you know, and, and that's not necessarily a great thing because they still might have a kid in the other room or a dog kissing their face or a dishwasher would be unloaded. So I think the days are getting longer because people are squeezing in these life bites into their day mm -hmm. where before life happened outside work. Now there is no life versus work. That's true. And also now that people are working more because it's also just easier to work more when you're at home. It, I feel like that you're going to run into a lot of employees that are not as happy with their job, just in the fact that it's not what it used to be. And they're going to be less and less engaged just because they're not happy. I feel like. It's mine. Well, engagement is really tough to measure right now because what is it you're measuring? I mean, what is it they're engaged with? Their team, their, not their office environment. And besides, you know, this is a moment in time. What we have now is not what we're going to have in a year. But the truth is anyone who knows what we're going to have in a year is just lying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going back to what you mentioned, you know, that employees are more comfortable to speak up now. I mean, do you feel like a lot of that is because they're sitting behind their computer, or their phone? And so you're not really having to have any face-to-face -face conversations with your superior or your peers. So it is easier to say what you feel, I think, and speak up. Well, I don't know that people are challenging their managers more. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I think that they're challenging their organizations more. So I think it's almost in a weird way, I haven't really thought about it that way, Corey, but almost more like a social movement, but internally in organizations. And that's a political thing. I mean, that just is. It is. It is. Janai, do you have anything to add for that? Yeah, no, I mean, sometimes it is easier to say certain things over email, over text, because in person, you just, not that your manager would ever physically hurt you, but you always have the implied like it's always different physically right you have this extra layer of fear like hey will they scream at me whereas like someone screams at you behind the computer it's not as threatening right so right. I, I do think that people are feeling more empowered also the fact is is if you didn't get fired your job was probably needed so you know like so that also gives you like okay they, I, I've been kept around I didn't get fired I you know I'm needed right I do think another shift, Corey, or change, maybe not a shift since we last spoke, is I do see business coming back. I do see people interviewing for jobs. I've been contacted by a couple of companies on some engagements about developing people. So I do think, you know, financially, I mean, I don't know about small to mid-sized returns, but there was just 
earnings reports, you know, in the journal and the times that big companies at least are doing really well. You know, the stock market may not be a real reflection of the whole economy, but there's a lot of money flowing out there. Um, and so I think even though there's also a lot of unemployment and a lot of suffering, those two things are happening at the same time. So there's a real bifurcation in the workplace of people who feel secure because they still have their job and things are happening and people who I think are still really scared. I, this is not my quote, someone else said it, but on Zoom, everyone's box is the same size. So I think there's been that sort of, at least psychologically leveling of the playing field that also speaks to employee empowerment. I like that. I've never heard that, but I like that. That's great. Um, one thing I want to, that I was just thinking about is the fact that, I mean, I, I think that the employers that are going back to some days in person, some days virtual, it also means that you might be with one group of employees in the office two days out of the week, and then you're with a different group of employees um, the other two or three days out of the week, which I feel like that could stir up some office politics between coworkers because it's almost like you're in these different cliques and you know what you're not all together at once in the same place and I don't know I think that that could cause some I, I completely agree with you I actually think it's gonna be a freaking mess um, I think I'll be enormously busy if that happens because you're going to have someone annoyed that that person's not there and they're not available on Zoom because they booked another meeting. You know, if anything, hybrid will help the development of AI in workforce planning because you have too many dependencies from this task force to this team to this deliverable. And maybe it won't matter if everyone's, you know, used to working remotely. But yeah, I do think it's going to create a lot of confusion, certainly initially. And I think it's really tough to manage. I mean, what if you're a manager? And you, you, do you have to keep track of who's in which day during which time slot? And, and what if it changes from week to week? You know, I mean, just think about how, if you want to know why hybrid doesn't work, ask any parent whose child has had a hybrid schooling schedule, right? Now imagine you have a division of 50 children on hybrid schooling schedules. It's a logistical nightmare. Yeah, it is. And, uh, Another part of it is that there's always in every group of people, school, workplace, there's always going to be those people that don't really work well together. And I think that is also going to be very difficult to monitor when you have that hybrid of in-person and virtual. It adds one more level of complexity to the political dynamics that would occur naturally. Right. For sure. Janet, is that what, are you seeing a lot of you know, essentially drama in some of the workplaces that you, you know, work with? I mean, the people I come across, they, they end up really liking it in the sense because they're more on the employee side. And I mean, especially me, it's like, it just allows more freedom, right? I, I know that for me, it's like, I, I didn't mind working more as long as I got like the 40 minutes more in the morning of sleep, right? To me, that was more important because that helped impact the rest of my day. It's like I'd easily trade that 40 minute commute for the 40 minutes sleep for 40 minutes extra, you know, extra work. Uh, the other thing is it just, uh, it just gives more flexibility. Like when you're running errands and stuff, now you don't have to like Saturday's the errand day. I can sort of 
you know, during the lunch break, I can quickly get out, you know, drop off dry clean, you know, all these other things that it just you get pockets of time back throughout the week that you can truly enjoy the weekend. So, I mean, I personally am in favor of it. You know, I don't, if the manager has to manage that logistical nightmare, good for them. They get paid more. That's their responsibility. But I, you know, I'm more about what the employee is. Right. And from the employee perspective, I'm talking to a lot of people. If, if it was like this, but it wasn't the pandemic, they would absolutely love it. Right. Right. I, I think there's going to be an incredible amount of tension between employers and employees on this topic because like most things in life once you give someone a benefit or something that benefits them or power you can't take it away you know I was interviewing a professor the other business school professor the other day and I said you know the most um, mistakenly thought of cliche is that's as easy as taking candy from a baby and if you ever tried to take candy from a baby, you would know it is not such an easy thing to do. Right? No. So, it's a ridiculously stupid cliche. So the candy and then they give it to you. Well, now it's an iPad from a baby, right? It is, it's iPad right. From the baby. Or it used to be a cell phone. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this it's, it's, a, it's a wrong cliche that uh, spans generations. So this idea that you can take away what Janine has described that flexibility that people never had before. No one's gonna say, yeah, you know that flexibility thing, even though I had to work extra hours, I didn't like that. Sure, take it. I'm thrilled. I mean, some people do miss the office because they miss the social interaction. Right. That doesn't mean they miss the commute. That yeah. doesn't mean they miss it every day. And so I, I think it's gonna be a really interesting thing to see when, like here in Manhattan, it's gonna be a very long time because you know, you, uh, the elevators is the main problem, to be frank, in, yeah. in, in, in a midtown high rise, when you can only have four people in an elevator and psychologically, even if they're all vaccinated, you think they're all going to want to crowd into an elevator at rush hour again? And transportation, uh, same thing. A big article today, how New York City um, uh, subways. The pollution, right? The pollution I know, in the wasn't subway. That, was that wild? Did you see that story? Uh, I heard of it. I'm not surprised. Well, what's the story? Oh, it's nuts. It's that some testing firm, I don't know, tested the air pollution within the subways and the subway stations. And they found it something like, I don't know, 10, some huge multiple worse than the air pollution on the street in all the traffic. Wow. And the links it has to respiratory disease and cancer. I mean, as if it weren't bad enough. If I were head of the MTA and now there's this story, unless you had to ride the subway, you would never want to ride the subway again. So then that's going to be a very big part, I think, of the, the office politics is people aren't going to want to go take transportation and go into crowded areas. How, how are you going to make the office attractive to return to? And I don't think employers have ever had to ask themselves that question before. 